Shabbat Shalom. We get to start a new series today, a venture on a new journey, looking at the women of the Bible. And the first couple weeks, uh, we're going to stick with a theme. And that theme is women of war and intercession. Powerful theme. And so I'm going to be grabbing some examples from Scripture, and uh, we'll just be bringing them uh, within the context of uh, war and intercession. And the first example we're going to look at today is actually found in the book of Exodus. It's these two women named Shifra and Pua. And these gals, uh, as you're going to see today, they're a powerhouse. And there's not a whole lot said. I mean, as you, as you read through that, I mean, very, very little is said, but we will spend the entirety of today looking at what is said, and I'm going to add some context, because there's no way we can delve into this, look at their story without having context, because only then are you going to appreciate who they are, what they did, when they did it. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to open up with a little backdrop, and basically you know, and forgive the oversimplification, the oversummarization. This is just a flyover, but stay with me. Basically, it goes like this. Joseph, betrayed by his brothers, eventually goes into Egypt by the will of God, is in prison, rises up, only second to Pharaoh. No one in the land can lift their hand or foot without his say-so. He's actually, they're bowing the knee. All the Egyptians are bowing to Joseph and as you, that's Genesis 41. As you go to Genesis 45, he's considered to be as a father to Pharaoh. So this guy has risen to the highest of heights. Well, it's at that point, a famine hits the land. The Lord, of course, knew all this was going to happen. That's why he brought Joseph. Joseph tells his family in its entirety, every one of them, pick up from the promised land. I mean, how weird is that, right? Leave the promised land and come and move to Egypt. And so you think about this situation. This is the backdrop. So you have two, two societies coming together to a degree integrating together. And let me ask you, how did that go? That went very well on the front end. In fact, you got to remember, Pharaoh holds Joseph in such high esteem that he shows honor he gives honor to Joseph's family. So understand something. The Israelites are in the land of Egypt. They have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They are dwelling in shalom in the land until a new king rises. And this is where we're going to pick this up. And we see in verse 8, this is what we read. Now there arose a new king over Egypt. Now listen to this who did not know Joseph. And you got to stop, let this sink in, because this statement is one of the most important statements. Before you continue at all going into Exodus, this has to sink in. This king did not know Joseph. There's a couple of things I, I want to say here. Joseph, and, and I think most of you have uh, the benefit of going through the Messiah or Mashiach ben Yosef series. 
And in that series, the whole thing was about how Joseph's life is a total typology of Yeshua. All the things, and it goes back to what the sages, the, the Jewish sages would say, the deeds of the fathers, meaning the stuff we read in Torah, all the stuff that's recorded are a sign, a prophetic sign for the children. In other words, you're going to read this stuff and this stuff's going to happen to you. This stuff's going to happen again. Listen to me carefully. What we are about to embark on today is highly prophetic. Oh, it's relevant for you. I think you're going to appreciate this today. And one of the key things here that I want you to see is that Joseph, he is a representation of Yeshua. Now, let me take this a step further. Okay, this king doesn't know Joseph. If you jump to Exodus chapter 5, Moses and Aaron present themselves to the king. And they say, thus says the Lord, shalach et ami, let my people go. How does Pharaoh respond? Get this. He says, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Interesting. First says, I don't know Yosef, a typology of Yeshua. Then as you continue, it's reiterated except using the tetragrammaton for the God of Israel. That's fascinating. All of this, the reason this is important is everything we're about to read, all the ugly stuff, all the hell that is going to be unleashed, it comes from here. Do you understand? It comes from the fact that there was a king that rose up. He doesn't know Yeshua. There's a king that rose up that he will not acknowledge the God of Israel. So let me tell you something. This is prophetic. This is profound. This is wisdom. This is understanding. If you have a king in our days, if you have a prime minister or if you have a president that rises to power, that does not acknowledge the Lord, that does not acknowledge Yeshua, what can you expect to come in the future? Hell. Evil is coming. Hell is going to be unleashed. It is certain. Persecution and tribulation are on the corner. This is a prophetic template. And so as we look at this, with this new king rising in Egypt, there's a serious political shift here. See, this pharaoh has a completely different perspective on how Egyptian society should look and how it should function in light of all these Hebrews living in their land. And so we move on to verse 9. This is what we read. And he said to his people, so this is pharaoh speaking to all the, 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 you know, your citizens in Egypt. Look, The people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Pharaoh has called the citizens. He's come to convince them there's a security threat. There's a real safety problem. And as I was mentioning, the only problem with that is there's not a shred of evidence to support it. There's no act of aggression. There's no violence coming from Israel to the Egyptians There is nothing. There's no hostility that's recorded. They're living in peace. And all you need to do is look at the history of Jews scattered throughout the world and all these times. You know what they do? They want to keep to themselves. They want to be productive in society. They're doctors. They're lawyers. This is what they do. And what ends up happening? Well, the Holocaust. This is what ends up happening. 
This is what's going on right here. It is mind-blowing that he is literally fabricating out of thin air a problem. And so he is sowing fear and paranoia in society because he has an agenda. See, the devil is in the details here. He's in the details here. So pay attention to this. And again, highly prophetic. Now he's going to go on, verse 10. We got this to work. Come, let us deal shrewdly. And you look at that in the Hebrew, let us act wisely in an evil way. We want to be clever here. In other words, we need to formulate a plan because these people are a threat to our society. This demographic is a real problem. And then he says this, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. Whoa. What is Pharaoh implying right here? Population control. This is what he's implying. We need to implement population control. And he explains this to sow more fear. And it happens in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against this. Oh, and so go up out of the land. Now, I want to stop here because if you're reading this, and I highlighted it on purpose, but you read this and, and it seems like his concern is, oh no, they're going to exit out of Egypt because we know the end of the story. You need to stop right there because that's not what's being communicated. This is not what is being said. Number one, Israel, right now, at this time in the story, they are free men. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. They're enslaved to no one. They have freedom. So when it says this, it actually is in the Hebrew, va'ala min haaretz. And what does that mean? It literally means to rise, to ascend from the land. In other words, this is a Hebrew idiom. It means we're terrified lest Israel grow in number. They're going to rise up and take our land. They're going to take the land. They're going to wipe us out. So this guy is literally pitching this to society, telling them we have a serious problem, though there is zero evidence to support this. He's sowing fear and propaganda, making sure that, hey, if we don't do something, this is your children. If you don't do something, this is grandma and grandpa. If you don't do something, this is your spouse. You see how powerful propaganda can be when you hit it to the core and you, 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 you attempt to show that everybody's life is threatened, there's a security threat, there's a, there's a safety threat? What's the answer? Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramesses. Okay, so notice the agenda the ultimate agenda, the ultimate goal is population control. Does Pharaoh start there? Oh, no. He starts with the life, the liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He removes their freedoms. These men, Israelites, went to bed one night with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they woke up the next morning in hell, being enslaved, looking down the barrel of tyranny. It happened almost overnight. They never saw it coming until it was too late. It's absolutely mind-blowing to see how this unfolds. And so they immediately, the first thing to do, we're going to strip all their rights and liberty, and we're going to push them down. We're going to lock them down. We're going to force them. 
and we're going to put them in such a psychological state of brokenness, it won't be able to rise. This is the spirit of Antichrist. This is the spirit that moves. This Pharaoh is being led by Satan himself. But check this out. This is powerful. In Exodus, going back to this, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. Oh, my goodness. Pay attention, people, because we know what's coming. There's going to be great trials. There's going to be great tribulation, great affliction. But know this. It's in those moments that God pours out his spirit. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up a standard. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. But this is what we see throughout history. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, what do you see? You see the disciples going forth, right? They're preaching the gospel. And immediately, what are they met with? Persecution. Right away. And we read in, in, in Acts 4.17, here's the response. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, meaning the apostles, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Their own nation's leaders rose up against them, obviously being led by the spirit of Antichrist, to shut down the gospel. The name of Yeshua is so powerful. That's the name that brings healing. That's the name that brings deliverance. That's the name by which we have forgiveness of sins. It's that name. And the enemy knew his kingdom and all these people he was oppressing is that in jeopardy. And so he wants to shut it down. Well, how'd that work? Go to the next chapter. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, the faith grew under persecution. Acts 8, at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. A great persecution. This is not a little. This is great persecution. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There's only a tiny remnant that got to stay. Everyone else was dispersed. And can you imagine what they went through? Can you imagine what they were going through? How did that work? Well, look at how it worked. Now, those who were scattered... After the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The faith is growing under unbelievable persecution. Go to the first, go to the second, go to the third century. Probably those centuries are the greatest time of persecution the church has ever recorded. Now, the true church has always been persecuted, but those centuries, it was unbelievable. Throwing Christians in the Colosseum to be devoured by beasts. Nero, isn't it interesting, especially when we're looking at how Pharaoh is manipulating his people, isn't it interesting how Nero blamed the Christians for the great fire in Rome? When even Tacitus records, uh, he said it, but he put the blame on them put fear into the Romans saying, they're, we're, they're attacking us. They're a threat to us. And what happened? Persecution came in, hardcore. But what do we all know, also know happened? The more the enemy came in to persecute, the more the spirit of God is poured out. You need to remember that in the days ahead. 
You need to be looking for that. We need that. Amen? And so as we look at this passage, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. This is how God works. Satan's given a door. You know, that door is open to come and and attack his saints. The Lord is going to respond. He will respond. And that is such good news. Verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, harshness, cruelty. Because again, they want to shove them down as hard as they can. So there's no chance that they even believe that there's a shred of hope. So there's no chance that they would in any way rise up against them. And the Septuagint actually says they oppressed them ruthlessly. Do you understand? See, the propaganda sunk in. The propaganda from Pharaoh worked. See, because what he successfully did is that now instead of the Egyptians looking upon Israel with humanity and through the eyes of humanity through the eyes of mercy and compassion, and just looking at these Hebrews as people, now we don't look at them as people. All I see is a threat. These people are a threat. They're a threat to my wife. They're a threat to my kids. All they see is the threat. And so their eyes are filled with fear, and they're filled with hatred. And because these are our problems. Our problems are all because of them. Absolutely demonic. Verse 14, and they made their lives bitter, meaning they tormented. You look at this in the Hebrew, they tormented them with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor, cruelty. And then we finally come to verse 15, where we get to these women of the Bible. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other, Pua. A couple things to mention here that I think are important. Number one, and I won't spend any time on this because we'll talk about it later on. Moses was very careful to not just simply use a title here, meaning two Hebrew midwives. And the Bible does this a lot, where it just gives you a title, the old prophet or the man of God, but you're not given a name. So even that would, you know, jostle you because this is normal however that is not the case here these two women we're not talking about moses and aaron these two women are mentioned by name significant the second thing is that i want to mention is that these two women these hebrew maidservants you, you have to appreciate they're not the only two midwives in the land The very thought is utterly ridiculous when you even take conservative numbers of where Israel was at when they left Egypt. Some estimate anywhere around 2 to 2.4 million. And that's easy because we know the exact number of men who were over 20, over 600,000. And so what I'm telling you is it's not even close to realistic to expect that, oh, there's only two Hebrew midwives and all that. So what's my point? My point is this. These two are representatives of a much larger industry. Do you understand? They're representing the Hebrew midwives as a whole. And that tells you something about Shifra and Pua. Obviously, it tells you they're very honored, they're very respected, obviously, among their people, and even knowing Pharaoh is the one who called them. He didn't call anyone else. He called them. 
And the context you need to appreciate here is that there is an incredible amount of weight that is placed on these two women's shoulders. Unbelievable amount of intensity that is placed and responsibility that is placed upon them. This is very significant as as we look at this introduction as the king calls them to present uh, themselves before him. Now, as we continue, this is where Pharaoh is going to go for the jugular. And he is going to attempt to execute the final phase of his plan, his agenda. Because it was not simply about taking away their freedoms. It was not simply about locking them down. It was not simply about afflicting them. There was more to it, right? And then we discover what that is in verse 16. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. See, Pharaoh was now moving to implement and, and pun intended, his final solution, right? He wants these Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work for them. I mean, it does make sense in, 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 the, in the practical sense, in the evil fleshly sense, that you'd, you'd utilize the midwives because they're there at the birth. And so now he's asking the Hebrew midwives, we need to start performing afterbirth abortions. So what he's asking them to perform. You guys do this. You know, as a side note, you know, this executive order that this king is making, this thing's going to come back to bite him and bite him hard because this does not go unnoticed by the Lord because he ends up taking out Pharaoh himself, his firstborn. This would be rained upon his head. And man, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. Egypt got to taste it. And all the citizens that played along in the propaganda got to taste it. This is serious. Now, the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew midwives, they're going to respond to the executive order that has just been made. In verse 17, we read the following. But the midwives feared God, did not do as the king commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Three things we need to talk about here. The first thing is this. They didn't do what the king of Egypt told them to do. Correct me if I'm wrong. I thought believers were supposed to be law-abiding citizens. We are supposed to abide by the law, the laws of the land. Read Romans 13. Read 1 Peter 2. There's no debate. We are called to obey the laws until those laws require you to compromise your faith. And then you step back and say, I'm not doing it. These women, and this is where I I, I want you women to pay very, very close attention. For Shifra and Pua to be able to do this under the weight that they were under, under the pressure that they're being put under. And think about this. There's an aspect that isn't mentioned here, but you can go through all throughout history looking at the spirit of Antichrist movement and how he functions. And every single time what you'll see, you'll see something reoccurring over and over. It plays over. He offers compensation. 
If you just submit, you just compromise, you just do my will, I will reward you. He did it to Yeshua. I mean, Yeshua himself. Yeah, if you just bow down and worship me, man, I'll give you all these kingdoms. Everything, all of it's been given to me. You see it in the story of Hanukkah and Antiochus. Antiochus first offered blessing. He first offered compensation. Now, again, we're not told here, but you better believe he doesn't call them, give them the duties of what he's giving them without some motivation, without some form of compensation. What was it? It could have been silver. It could have been gold. It could have been a better place to live. It could have been better living conditions. It could have been protection. It could have been the restoration of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We don't know. But what we can be confident of, something was offered here. These Hebrew midwives are really put to the test. Because keep in mind, were living conditions in Israel, or the Israelis living in Egypt, were they good? They were hell. It was unthinkable, unbelievable hell. And so the fact that he calls them and would offer them any reprieve, do not kid yourself, that is a temptation. These Hebrew midwives don't even blink. They don't hesitate. These women are a cut from a different cloth entirely. Their commitment, their strength, their honor, their wisdom, it's like nothing you've ever seen. These, these are heroes of the faith. You know what's amazing to me? The first heroes of the faith mentioned in Exodus is not Moses and Aaron. It's Shifra and Pua. It's two women who were two lights in complete darkness. The land was covered in pure evil, and these two women are rising up. And when the king gives the edict, he gives the executive order they rebel. They did not love their lives to the death. They did not. They took their own lives in their hands, and they were willing to die to honor the Lord, to do this, the, sec the second thing. They saved the male children alive. They became saviors, not the savior, but working on behalf of the great shepherd, the great savior. And they went on the rescue mission. Instead of destroying them, they protected them. And for this to happen, that means they had to instruct the other Hebrew midwives. To do this, in this situation, with this kind of pressure, where do you get that strength, women? Where are you going to get that strength? There, there's something I'm looking for here. There's something you need to understand. Because I know uh, there is some of you, if you guys go home and you're honest, you'll be like, Daniel, I don't know if I'm ready. The kind of stuff you're talking about, I don't know if I'm ready. Well, obviously, you can't be there. You, you got to be in the land of Shifra and Pua. You got to have that kind of strength. And where do we get it? Right here. The midwives feared God. Do you understand? Everything flows. The strength, the commitment, the allegiance, the focus, everything Shifra and Pua had all stemmed from the fear of the living God. So what I'm telling you women is you have to go get the fear. And you say, well, how do you do that? Well, if you were paying attention towards the end of uh, the Jude series, I talked about it. You remember in Deuteronomy 17, the king is commanded to make himself, for him, himself a copy of the Torah 
and he is to read it all the days of his life. And then it says that he might learn to fear the Lord. Where does that fear come? Go to Deuteronomy 31. It's all about Sukkot. Okay, Sukkot. During Sukkot, you bring the men and the women. Bring the men, the women, the children. And you are to read the Torah before all my, all my people that they may learn to fear me. Are, do you understand why the enemy would take the Torah away from the church? So that when hell is unleashed, they do not have the power, the strength, the perseverance to endure because they never got the fear. You have to get back. You want the fear, women. You want to look like a Shifra and Pua to be two lights, to be saviors to your people, to be able to carry out unbelievable, unthinkable exploits. And a time when total persecution in hell is being unleashed on the Christian population, then you need the fear. First, get the fear. Get the fear of the Lord. That means you get back into the word. You read his story. You read the whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, and let the Holy Spirit start to build you up and strengthen you because I, I guarantee you, you will compromise if you don't have the fear of the Lord. Shifra and Pua feared God more than men. They feared God more than the government. They feared God more than death. This is the kind of caliber of women, I'm telling you, you either rise up or you're going to fall. It takes this kind of quality of a godly woman to survive what is coming. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? You know why. Because they fear God more than they fear you. I don't care how many executive orders you throw at me. I don't care. It's not going to happen. I'm going to obey my God. And this is the mindset of Shifra and Pua. See, there's no deliberation. There's no fear. There's absolutely no fear. Just the fear of God. Moving on. And the midwives said to Pharaoh... Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're lively, and they give birth before the midwives come to them. <laughs> These women don't just fear God, but they have an incredible amount of wisdom and story capabilities, <laughs> storytelling. You know, this is a passage that has sparked a lot of conversation for some, they're, they're, there's a theological conundrum here. We know from Scripture, I mean, we can read uh, in the Ten Commandments, and we can read, thou shalt not bear false witness. We're not supposed to do it. And then you go to the end of the book, go to Revelation, and it said, all liars will receive their share in the lake that burns with fire. That's clear language. Liars are going to burn in hell. But Shifra and Pua, uh, they told a whopper, Did they do wrong? And this is where discernment has to come in. Listen to me carefully. And we're not going to spend as much time as I wanted to. I could dedicate entire message, if not messages, to just this passage. But I'm going to say enough today to help you understand. What they did was righteous. And I'm going to tell you something. You think about Nazi Germany. 
and all the Christians that would take Jews in and lie through their teeth to the Nazi soldiers, come in, do you have Jews in the house? And they would lie through their teeth and say, absolutely not. Is what they did, was that honorable and righteous? Yes. You know what's interesting? In all these situations, where, and, and I can't even tell, there's a plethora. There's a plethora of examples in scripture of this. In all these situations, it's in the context of war in the context of war. Rahab lied to the government officials. The government officials say, give up these Israelites. Give them up. One of them was a Jew. Give these people up. And she wouldn't do it. And the payment for that, for her being faithful and loving God's people and protecting God's people, it would be through her that the lineage of Yeshua would come. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Where she would be honored beyond because she did that. I could tell you of times of, of, of a young servant woman who's mentioned in 2 Samuel. She did the exact same thing Rahab did. Righteous. I could talk about David. Multiple occasions. David comes out and he pretends madness. He's not mad. He's deceiving king, uh, the king of Achish. Okay? Achish from Gath, he's deceiving him. He went in, in Abimelech, the priest. David tells him a story. It's not true. Jonathan lies to his father, deceives his own father, the king, King Saul. Why? On behalf of David to save his life. It was a context of war. It was a context that this, this righteous man needs to be spared. And therefore, it was a righteous thing. And we could go on. There's many other examples I could give you. I could talk about the patriarchs. I could talk about Abraham. I could talk about Isaac, who came before Avimelech and said, no, Rebecca, no, that's my sister. Can you imagine what my wife would do to me if I introduced her <laughs> as my sister? That would not go well. But he does it, and he literally says, well, I thought I would be killed. You've you got to have some discernment here. There shouldn't be as much debate about this as there is because we know absolutely fundamentally it's wrong to lie. But when you're in the context of war and saving the righteous, saving God's people, going to defend them, willing to put your own lives on the line, that's a different story. How does God look at Shifra and Pua? What is the very next verse? I want to show you how God responds. Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. See, God was pleased with Shifra and Pua. Their actions, now think about this, women. They chose to be a part of God's saving grace. They chose to be a part of that. They chose to be instruments of righteousness. That decision did not come easily. But they chose that because that's where their heart ultimately was to please the Lord. I mean, there is no higher galling. There's no greater purpose. There's no greater achievement than for you to walk in the will of God and to be those two shining lights and bringing salvation in a time of total darkness. That's where you need to be. Verse 21. And so it was because the midwives feared God. There it is again. You want to know where it all stems from? all their strength, all their honor, the power that they displayed in a time of total darkness. They feared God. Because they did this, what happens? 
Well, this is what we read, that he provided households for them. He gave them households. And what does that mean? Does that mean that, I mean, you think about it, this, this would make sense, but does it mean that, you know, all these babies that they went and saved, you can only imagine how all the families are extremely thankful that these deliverers came in and defended their children. And you could imagine that the, you know, the, 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 the husband or the father of the house would come and say, anytime you need a place to stay, you know, come here. And you can imagine how the favor that they gained with the people. Amazing. These two women. But that's not what it means. It's way bigger than that. What, what is being implied here is miraculous. God did something supernatural for them. Why? Because they walked on water. They walked supernaturally. Therefore, they're going to experience the supernatural power of God. And what I mean is, is I'm going to take you to the Septuagint. I'm going to show you how the Septuagint translates this verse. It's a little bit clearer. Since the midwives feared God, what did they do? They produced for themselves families. See, what this is alluding to is that whether or not, you know, it appears that Shifra and Pua were not able to bear children, and they had no children of their own. Think of Sarah. Sarah was past the age to give birth, conceiving. She couldn't do it. She was past. God opened her womb supernaturally. That's why Isaac is literally a miracle. It couldn't physically happen. He wasn't a child of the flesh. He was a child of the power of God. You think of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, a woman that was past the age. She was old, she couldn't, totally childless, and guess what? God did a supernatural miracle. This is what the Lord does for Shifra and Pua. The Targums put it this way, and this is amazing. For as much as the midwives feared before the Lord, they obtained for themselves a good name. What? Until the ages for eternity. And this goes back to the fact that Moses mentions them by name. There's no debate. Those names, Shifra and Pua, are in the Lamb's book of life. They're in the book. They've been recorded for all eternity. And you think about, we're about 3,500 years out. And I'm up here telling you about two unbelievable women, and I'm calling them out by name. Think about the honor that they have acquired. Unbelievable. You'll never get there, women, unless you do what they were willing to do. You'll never get there unless you're willing to stand when everyone else is falling. It's never going to happen. I mean, what kind, of, what kind of women do you want to be? I'm going to tell you right now, in this community, we need Shifra and Puas. We need this kinds of women for what's coming. We need these kind of women to exist, to be a light and a very very dark and ugly place. Now this goes on and says, and the word of the Lord upbuilded for them a royal house, even the house of the high priesthood. I mean, you just think about how decorated they are. It's incredible. Again, to get there, you're going to have to fear God more than you fear man. You're going to have to fear God more than the government. You're going to fear God more than death. You're going to have to love him more than you love the world. You're going to have to trust him in the affliction more than loving the comfort. This is the call. And maybe some of you thought I was going to come up here and throw rose petals out. You know, we're doing the (laughs) women's series. 
You look at the women of the Bible, and, and even I'll be honest with you, I was taken back. I was just like preparing notes and stuff, and I'm blown away. I'm like, oh no, this isn't going to even be what I thought it was going to be. These women are unreal. These are soldiers of the Most High God, willing to go to war, willing to stand. I mean, this, they're hardcore. These women of the Bible sold out and radical. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, there is one more verse, and I wasn't going to do this, but this is the last. We might as well cover the last verse in the chapter rather than leave it hanging. And so in verse 22, we read the following. So Pharaoh commanded all his people. I'm going to highlight that. All his people. Interesting. What did he command them? Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Pharaoh just created a new executive order. See, the first one, how he wanted to originally do it, you know, he put the, you know, as they say, he put the little carrot on the stick. Now that hasn't really worked. And so now he's got to get more serious. Now he's going to employ the citizens of his country. All of them think about this. It is your duty, all of you citizens, in the best interests of Egypt and your fellow man, it is just your duty to step up and do this. Now, you, you know, you, you may be uncomfortable, but in the end, you know what? It's for everyone's safety. This might make you uncomfortable, but you need to do this. You can see, I mean, it's like you can see Hitler talking to the Germans and all the propaganda and filth that was going throughout Germany and how it just blows your mind that an entire society can be brainwashed. Blows your mind. But this is what he does. And there's one one more thing I will cover here, and that is this. They're going to cast him in the river. And that's interesting because, you know, why not dig graves in Egypt and just bury them? Well, I mean, the practicality might not work in the sense of, well, we're kind of bringing a lot of attention to what we're doing here. It requires laborers. We've got to take up the land. It's just so much easier to dispose of them, and they're out of mind, out of sight. It's absolutely demonic. I mean, just thinking about the, the thought process behind this, but I, there's something even more here. The fact that they would throw them in the river. Egypt, because, you know, there's a saying, okay, for the Egyptians that, hey, if the sun burns out, the Egyptians will work in the dark. But if the Nile stops, the Egyptians will die. And the reason that's important is, is, is because the Egyptians end up deifying the Nile. And they treat it as a god. And you know how they sacrificed it? They threw their sacrifices into the Nile. And so here you have these Hebrew children being literally thrown. The, the command and the whole commission is to throw them in the Nile. And, and this is where I go back to the reality that I'm telling you, and this is my perspective, all of these disgusting abortions that are happening where we're killing our unborn children, these things are being offered at the altar of Baal. This is, this is an altar of, of demons that these things are being offered at. But this stuff is, is, unfortunately, this stuff isn't new. You know that, what we're seeing. But the magnitude that we're experiencing has never existed in the history of the earth. The magnitude let that sink in to know how close we are to Yeshua coming home, to take us home. He's coming back. We are close.
do not become complacent in that reality. And so we're going to close here.